safest or the surest road to hell is the gradual one. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Good morning. Happy Sunday. What a glorious day. It's always a good day to be with God's people. Amen. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles open to Genesis chapter 19. This morning we continue our exposition of Genesis. If this is your first Sunday or first few Sundays, you'll notice that we teach through the scriptures verse by verse. So Genesis 19 is what we're going to study the whole chapter today. Uh, Men, one more, just one more push for this. We really want to encourage you to register today uh, for the Sound Men's Conference. You can go to soundmensconference.com or grab one of these cards This is a great opportunity to invite unbelievers, uh, co-workers, men who maybe like basketball or cornhole. Uh, And so this is an opportunity for us to uh, take one of these. If you're already registered, great. Take this and give it to someone and encourage and invite someone to be a part of this. It's going to be a great time as uh, we expect about 100 plus men. So uh, we encourage you to come out for that. Multiple churches joining in together. Genesis chapter 19, going to be reading from the ESV starting in verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men, <clears throat> then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because... The outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. 
So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are the word made flesh, that you have given us hope, and assurance, and grace, and peace. And Lord, you told your disciples to take heart, because in this world you'll have trouble, but we can take heart because you've overcome the world. John, in his epistle, would say, who is he that overcomes the world? The one who has faith. And so, Lord, we ask that this morning you would strengthen our faith, bolster it, increase it. As the disciples would ask you, we ask now, increase our faith. The, the world before us has so many uh, sinful things that allure us. And Lord, none of us here this morning are not in some way in our lives swayed 
or enticed by this world. And so, Lord, we pray that we, as John would tell us, as we already confessed this morning, we would not love the world or anything in the world, but, Lord, that we would have the love of the Father and that, Lord, we would overcome the world through faith. So, Lord, bless this time as we open your word. We ask that you would minister to us through the Holy Spirit and that you would allow us to understand the gospel in a fresh way today. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen. It's been about 80 years to the year that C.S. Lewis wrote the Screw Tape Letters. There were a series of articles that were uh, written in The Guardian, which was an Anglican publication. And they were compiled in February of 20, or not of 20. They were compiled 80 years ago. Uh, 2022 is the 80th anniversary. And in, these, uh, in this writing, the Screw Tape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes describing a junior demon corresponding with a superior uncle demon. And he's trying to get advice on how to tempt, how to deceive, how to ultimately destroy the person to whom he's been assigned. And here's what the senior demon, whose name is Screwtape, says to the junior demon named Wormwood about compromise. He says this, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. The safest or the surest road to hell is the gradual one. That's what we're going to study and observe today in Genesis 19 as we see the nephew of Abraham and his missteps. Now, up until this point in the Genesis narrative, we have seen God establishing his covenant with Abraham. We have seen that God promised to bless him and to make him a blessing. Whoever would bless Abraham would themselves be blessed. Whoever would mistreat him would be cursed. We've already seen a run-in with Abraham and the king of Sodom. In this day and age, they had city kings. We would consider them mayors, but they would be known as kings. We've already seen, back in Genesis 14, as Abraham routed those four powerful city kings who had defeated the five lesser kings. And remember, Lot had been carried away with all of the spoils and all of the people of Sodom. And there Abraham was greeted by Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem. And remember, he gave a tithe of all the spoils to this enigmatic figure who really is a great picture of our high priest and king, Jesus Christ. But remember when the king of Sodom, right after that, sort of tried to strike a bargain with Abram. Remember that? He said, hey, give me all the people, but you can keep for yourself all of the spoils of the city of Sodom. And remember what Abraham's response was? He says, I don't even want a thread or a sandal strap, lest you would say, I'm the one who gave Abram his riches, including that one sandal. It's me. I'm the one who has made Abraham rich. Abraham, in other words would not take anything from the king. He would have nothing to do with Sodom to his credit because he would go on to say, I trust in God most high. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, I will not submit myself to receive anything from the world because I'm worshiping one who owns the world. He's greater than the world. He's the one in whom I delight. Now that's in sharp contrast with his nephew Lot. Lot much in every way, wanted all that Sodom had to offer him. But just as Lot and you and I are quick to find out, the world will give you way more than you asked for, right? And it will take from you far more than you ever imagined. 
The last time we saw Lot in Genesis was in that moment when he was being carried away captive, living in the city of Sodom. And the reason he had ventured that direction in the first place was back in Genesis 13, his herdsmen and Abram's herdsmen had started disputing because there wasn't enough land to handle all of their flocks. And so in Genesis 13, Abraham had chosen the better way by saying, you choose first. He had the right to choose first, but he allowed Lot to make his choice. And Genesis 13.10 says this. It says, Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, and like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. And then, of course, we have this little precursor, this little narrative note. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Now we come to the moment in the narrative where we see the destruction of the valley. Lot and his family from that point, from Genesis 13 onward, become a sort of literary foil contrasted with the righteousness of Abraham. And thus, they provide for us an object lesson in what not to do in our journey of faith. We've been studying Abram and what it looks like to have faith, and now we see what, it's look, what it looks like to not walk by faith. So Lot serves as a contrast, as a backdrop, as a failure in the ways that Abram will stand out and stand tall next to. In fact, our sermon title this morning is The Missteps of Lot, but it could just as well be How to Destroy Your Life in Four Easy Steps. In fact, if this were a clickbait article, you've seen those, it would say, four ways Lot compromised his faith, number four will blow your mind. (laughs) hate those. Today we're going to see the gradual, gentle slope of compromise. It leads to great sinfulness, and sadly, it leads to great scandal. Now, if you're taking note, my prayer is that this would be a great encouragement and an exhortation for some who may be desiring to compromise in some area in some way. Here's the four things that happen with compromise, and this is going to be our our outline for the text this morning. First of all, we're going to see in verses 1 through 11, sojourning closer to the world, just an inch closer. We'll see in verses 12 through 22, settling for something short of God's ways. God has something for us, we settle short. We'll see suffering as we face God's judgment, verses 23 through 29. And sadly, we'll see scandal and disaster as a result of compromise, verses 30 through 38. And listen, it's my prayer today that if there are any among us or who are watching, listening to this later, and you're beginning to compromise, my prayer is that this sermon would be that timely corrective signpost that rouses you to active repentance and faith and that will spare you from much heartache and the aftermath of a shipwrecked life. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 1 and sojourning closer to the world. It says, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. Remember, these are the two angels that we were introduced to last week in Genesis 18. They accompanied the Lord, and we saw them in Genesis 18 passing by the tent of Abraham. In the heat of the day, he invites them in to stop, and he offers them his hospitality. Remember, they were going to get an eyewitness account of the outcry that had come against Sodom and those surrounding cities. And like always, God will verify with the account of two or three witnesses. But notice where Lot is sitting in verse 1. It says, Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Abraham last week is sitting in the entrance of his tent. And in contrast, Lot is sitting 
Not just in Sodom, but in the gate, the city gate of Sodom. So if we recount this, Genesis 13.10, he's not just looking toward Sodom. Or Genesis 13.12, he is pointing his tents toward Sodom. Or Genesis 14.12, he's dwelling in the city of Sodom. But now, in 19.1, he's in the gate of the city of Sodom. Now, why is that significant? Well, the city gate in many ways, was a set of buildings, not just the entrance, but a set of buildings near or at the entrance of an ancient city. And this is the place where city business was transacted. The prominent, the influential, the decision makers, the movers and shakers of the city, those influential men would come together and they would sit there, they would meet there, they would decide and judge disputes, they would keep an eye on who walked into the city, who exited the city, And on behalf of the citizens, they were the ones who conferred together. In short, it was the modern-day equivalent of City Hall. Lot isn't just inside or near Sodom. No, he is not even just a citizen. He is an established and united confederate and, and a leader in the city. We might use the language that Lot was both in and of the world. He has sojourned closer and closer and closer to the extent that the sinfulness of Sodom has now crept into his home and into his family's hearts. You see the progression? You see how it's a slippery slope? It begins with looking toward Sodom, then facing our tents near it, then inside of it, and then the very identity yourself is linked to the world. What says in the rest of verse 1, when Lot saw the angels... He rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face to the earth and then he invites them in, much like Abraham did. So he's offering that same ancient Near East hospitality, which was a big thing. We've moved aside from it a little bit, but I wish we could get it back. Uh, This was a big thing for him to invite them in. And it says, they say, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. The standard custom of travelers when they entered the new city, was just to come in and sleep inside the open square, just inside the city gate. But this is no ordinary city, is it? This is Sodom. We learned last week that Sodom was condemned for a variety of things, including haughtiness and pride, excess and ease, a lack of concern for the poor and the needy. It was just marked by taking from neighbor. In fact, they were so self-centered They had moved beyond the natural expression of sexuality between husband and wife, man and woman, to the extent that they would sexually violate anyone whom they desired. In fact, the term sodomy derives its name from the city of Sodom. And the perverse men would see a new visitor walking through the city gates as open season to exploit and even to rape. So Lot, when he hears him say, we'll sleep in the, in the square. No, 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 my lords, please. Uh, please come into my home. Verse 3 says, he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside and entered his house. And then he did much of what Abraham did. He offers them a feast and he bakes unleavened bread and they ate. This is most likely motivated by wanting to protect the men. But sadly, Lot's home had not been protected from the corruption of Sodom. So notice verse 4. This invitation into their home invites the attention of the sinful men of the city. It says, and this is just so fascinatingly despicable to me, it says both the young and the old, the people to the last man, surrounded the house. 
And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, this does not mean we want to know them. We want to hang out with them. We want to throw darts or axes and just get to know them as brothers and as men. No, the word know here means to have sex with. So, so think of it for a minute. And I know it's despicable to think about, but, but consider with me for a minute that each and every man in the entire city, from the youngest to the oldest, wants to join together and commit forcible group rape. Now, Matthew Vines is an ardent defender of the gay community. And he plays scripture origami here to say that violence was the real sin that God was against, not homosexuality. So he reads the same text that we just read. And he says, this act is sinful, not because men desire other men. This is sinful because look how violent they are. It's a group of men. And they're doing this instead of having real love. If two men want to love one another in a loving, committed relationship, well, that's not sinful. That, God doesn't call that sin. And a friend of mine, when I shared this perspective with him, he said, evil Knievel couldn't make a jump that big. Now, my question to Matthew Vines is, okay, well, then why did Lot call their motives just a few verses from now? He says, men, you're acting so wickedly. Don't act so wickedly. But then he offers his daughters to them. Uh, if the sin was merely sexual assault by a group of people violently, why then does he offer his children and call their actions wicked? You see, the violence here is atrocious, but the, the unnatural desire of men for men is the actual sin which is condemned. Jude verse 7 makes that very clear. It's deserving of punishment. In fact, while we're on this topic, if you want to jot these verses down, the Bible consistently condemns homosexual behavior. This is not a popular message today. Leviticus 18, 22 and 20, verse 13, call homosexuality an abomination. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, as we studied in our Roman series, speak about how it's dishonorable, uh, both homosexuality and uh, lesbianism, and it's contrary to nature. It is, uh, it is erring. Now, you might say, and I have heard people say, well, wait, hold on. That's just two or three verses. There's many more than that. But they might say, but Jesus never condemned homosexuality. So therefore, Jesus doesn't oppose that particular lifestyle. Well, I would say, but Jesus also never said anything particularly about abortion, about molesting children, about bombing as terrorists. And so it's a ridiculous claim to conclude, therefore, Jesus is for terrorist bombings because he never explicitly spoke against them. Uh, no, the Old Testament law expressly forbids it, and in multiple places, like Matthew 19, 4, and 6, Jesus affirms a biblical sexual ethic, and he upholds marriage between man and woman, husband and wife. And so we don't need to be intimidated by those who would dismiss these passages away and, again, play some sort of uh, incredible origami with the Scriptures to change it. No, what do we do? We lovingly call them to repentance just like we do with any other sinner. So notice what happens next. The men are crowded around. They're forcing him. Bring these men out. It says, verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, and he shut the door after him. And then he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Well, that's some shelter. 
It's safe enough to protect these two strangers, but it's not safe enough to protect his own daughters. Notice how backwards this is. He shuts the door ostensibly to safeguard his own integrity in how these two guests view the city. But what's actually happening? There's an angry mob right outside his door. And then notice with me, this is despicable. He begs them instead of standing up and telling them to stand down. This is complete cowardice. Lot should have walked out, slammed the door, and said, no one is getting in through this door except by me, through my dead body. And you might say, well, that's a little toxic masculinity if I've ever heard it. And I would say that's not toxic masculinity. That's called being a man. And by the way, what we call toxic is actually just, a lot of it's just masculinity. And we need a little more masculinity these days, not less. So Lot says, notice he goes on to say, do not act so wickedly. In other words, I have the moral high ground. All you need is to be righteous like I am. In fact, Peter will one day say, I'm a righteous man. So you need to be like me. Don't do wicked things like this. Don't do this to my guests. Instead, here are my daughters. I mean, we can see the irony here, can't we? It's thick. Lot capitulates to their desires rather than standing his holy ground. I can never imagine a father, and just studying this this week made me sick almost. As I consider me as a father, I can't imagine a father saying, let me, let me bring my children, my daughters out to you so you can do to them as you please. Lot has sojourned so much in the world that the world is now so, sojourning deeply in his heart. Now, down in verse 14, we learn that there are two men who are most likely betrothed to his two daughters. Did you see that when we read through it? The text calls them sons-in-law. Now, in that culture, of course, to be engaged or betrothed was as legally binding as marriage. And so that makes Lot's suggestion doubly heinous. Do you see what he's doing? Not only is he offering his two precious daughters to be devoured by this sexually immoral crowd of men, but he's offering two women who have already been pledged to be married. One commentator said the hospitality code in that time compelled the host to do all within his power to protect the safety of those who entered his home. And I think that's laughable. What about the safety of the children within his home? See, the evil that he's now accepting is acceptable to him because it's within the limits of what the people in the city have approved. So does the city respect Lot? As he says, don't do this evil thing. Notice verse 9. They said, stand back. And they said, we will deal worse with you than with them. But notice in between, they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. You see, they mock him. They dismiss him as an outsider. They call him judgmental, and then they seek to harm him. Does that sound familiar? Let me repeat that. Being mocked being dismissed as someone who has no clue, you're being judgmental, and now we're going to take you down. We're going to cancel you. Such is the case for all people of God who are in the world, but especially those who sojourn too close to the world. It always comes at a cost. Now, Peter explains what happens to Lot in his second epistle. I referenced it a minute ago, but look, look at these words. Jot these down. 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8 says... And this is in context, a much larger section, but just this little snippet says, And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, 
For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Do you see that? Lot lived among them day after day, and his righteous soul became tormented or tortured. It was, another translation says it was vexed. It was oppressed because the, the constant daily onslaught of sin that he was surrounded by. And as I was preparing for this, I, I thought there's an illustration that maybe goes with this. Have you guys ever seen sea stacks? Have you ever been to a coast that has or seen a picture of these? Sometimes on Amazon, if you have, uh, if you have Amazon, it'll, it'll flash up as a screensaver. You have Google, it'll flash up on your screen. These are beautiful, often tall outcroppings of stone that they seem to stand alone, just out there along uh, the, you know, the coast of um, usually uh, of the west coast of the United States. And at first glance, if you, if you take a cup of water and you splash it on a rock, the rock seems stronger than the water. You just splash water, the water splashes away, and nothing about the rock changes. But if you're to subject that same stone with massive amounts of water and relentlessly pummel the same impenetrable stone with water, eventually that stone will give way. It'll erode away, and that's what's left standing with sea stacks. It's just that constant erosion and that powerful water. Eventually, it'll tear away, and it will erode. And it's no different with the righteous man or woman. If you've sojourned so close to the world, surrounded yourself with ungodliness, the sensual conduct of the wicked will eventually distress the person of God. And that's what happens here in Lot. That's how we make sense of how despicable Lot has become. In his actions. Now the story picks up the pace in verse 12 after the angels strike the men with blindness. And so it's time to escape, it's time to get away, it's time to be rescued, to be saved from destruction. And yet in the second section, we're going to see how Lot will be settling for something short of God's ways. Look at verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons in law sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. We're about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has come, become great before the Lord. The Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out, and of course the first people that he knows outside of his immediate family are the two men who are to marry his daughter. So he comes to them, verse 14, says, up, get out of this place. For the Lord is about to destroy the city. But notice how they respond. They seemed, he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. This is a contrast with what we saw in chapter 17 and 18. Remember we saw Abraham and Sarah both laughing when God tells them that Isaac would be born around a year from now. Here, the men betrothed to be a part of the covenantal family betrothed to Lot's daughters, they think his message is nonsensical, if not comical. Lot is now trying to invoke the name of the Lord, and yet as he does that, it's a joke. And even to his own family, he seems to be joking. We don't see him doubling down, though. What do we not see? We don't see him fighting for the salvation of these men. No, I'm not joking. Come with me and grabbing them. No, they just think he's jesting, and this is the last time we hear from them. So we have to understand they were destroyed in fire by the wrath of God. If Lot could have influenced anyone outside of his own family, certainly to walk in the ways of Yahweh, 
it would have been the men closest to his daughters. But because he had constantly compromised his faith, as many, uh, what happens in many of our lives, our attempts at piety can come off as absurd. I see this sadly with a lot of fathers. Fathers who abdicate their responsibilities of discipline in the home to their wife. They abdicate gospel instruction to the youth ministry. They abdicate the care of their family to mothers-in-law or to daycare because they're so enamored with themselves or with their careers at the city gate that their children are being neglected and their family's spiritual care is overlooked to their shame. But then we wonder why our kids grow up and want nothing to do with Christ when they leave our homes. And the reason is that the Christianity they grew up with was twice a month weekend events outside the home. It wasn't a reality or a lifestyle in the home. And so God's desire for Lot was for him to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and enter the Jordan Valley with good news of the Creator to proclaim righteousness and justice and to uphold the ways of Yahweh. And so the angel's question, have you anyone else here? It's a question of indictment. And his answer should have been, yes, there are scores of people. I use my influence in the city gate to see many people come to faith in Yahweh. Not just my own family, but sadly, Lot settled for something short, something convenient, something that may help and boast his own life. G. Campbell Morgan said, the reason why men do not look to the church today is that she has destroyed her own influence by compromise. Sadly, that is what happens even today. Now, as we come to verse 15, it's almost sunrise, and Lot still hasn't evacuated his family. We read this, and we're just frustrated. What are you doing? And so verse 15, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up. Same thing that he said to these men, to the sons-in-law. Up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. Listen, men, this is what responsibility looks like. We take the initiative and we say, let's do this. I'm going to lead the family. This seems really out of the ordinary. This seems extreme, but we're going to do this. We've been called out of darkness into light, out of the world into the kingdom. Let's do this. Let me take the lead here. But notice what happens, verse 16. But he lingered. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand little subnote says the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. But he lingered. Lot is either an imbecile or his character had been so compromised that he doesn't want to acknowledge God's judgment was coming. Now, God would have been completely just right here, right now, by just leaving him in this condition. But God was answering the prayer of Abraham and was merciful to him and these angels intervene they literally the the hebrew they seize him and they bring him out of destruction that sounds a little bit like my own conversion story i like to use the phrase that's a puritan phrase i was like a brand plucked out of the fire i've been i've been snatched out i've been seized i loved my sin but in god's mercies he seized me from certain destruction and brought me out to a spacious space that is our testimony so the angels seize him they delay. Notice verse 17. They brought them out and one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. This judgment is complete. It's not partial. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. 
Now, if an angel of God says this to you, here's a public service announcement. This is a freebie for you this morning. You do exactly what the angel tells you to do. <laughs> hey, I'm going to wipe out everything. You, okay, where, where should I go? Just tell me. And notice verse 18. <laughs> Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I can't escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. And then he asks, can, I, can we settle here? Can I settle for Zoar? It's a little city. The city uh, name Zoar just means little. Uh, can I just hang out here? This is easy. My life will be saved if I could just settle here. Uh, we, we hear, don't we, an echo of Lot's grumbling in the life of those who just don't want to repent. They don't want to obey. Things like, you can't expect me to be that extreme in my walk. I'm just going to settle for something little. A little easier to manage. A little closer in proximity. I can't go that far, as far as the Lord wants me to go. But I'll settle for this smaller plan. You see, Lot is bargaining for something less burdensome. And this is in great contrast to what we studied in Abraham last week. He's crying out to God, treading very lightly and humbly on holy ground as he asks from the majesty and the greatness of Yahweh, can I just ask one more? Could we go 30? How about, Lord, how about 20? He continues to bargain, uh, risking his own life to save others. And what is Lot bargaining for? Something, even risking his family's life for something more convenient. Let's settle for something that makes life easy. Well, God is merciful. Verse 21, Behold, I grant you this favor also, not, or that I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Now, why couldn't the angel do anything until he arrived there? Why? Because God was sovereign and true to Abraham. There may not have been 10 righteous in the city, but God was still faithful to save Lot at the request of his faith-filled uncle. Now, as we look at this and we realize this is compromise, a huge component of compromise is settling. It's settling for something less than God has for us. Or another word we could use is tolerating. It's tolerating evil. Jesus rebuked the church in Thyatira for tolerating false teaching. They're putting up with it. They're settling for it. And it was embodied in the uh, prophetess known as Jezebel. He rebuked the church and said, repent. He rebuked the church in Pergamum. Wait, the same Jesus who's always smiling and is kind to children? Yes, that same Jesus. He rebukes the church in Pergamum. He says, you are holding fast to my name, and you're not denying the faith, but you do have some that hold to false teaching. And so his word to both these churches is repent and hold fast to the truth. You and I can often settle for something that is less than the truth of Scripture or something that is less than God's ultimate desire and His law. One person said this, compromise is but the sacrifice of one right or good in the hope of retaining another, too often ending in the loss of both. And that's what happens in his life. He's willing to settle. And the Lord would say to us, don't settle for anything. No, repent and repent fully. Well, notice what happens next. A new day is now dawning. It's the day of judgment for the valley. And look now as compromise leads to suffering. Verse 23 says, The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to the little town of Zoar. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. 
and he overthrew those cities and all the valley, all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. This is an utter, absolute, complete judgment of the cities. What used to be compared to the Garden of Eden is now a wasteland. But see, this judgment was not without much mercy. God had provided the righteous man Lot to be a witness to Sodom and Gomorrah. God had spared the city from exile many years earlier when Abraham had routed the four powerful kings and had brought all the people back. He had shown mercy to them. They as a people, all ostensibly standing by, had been exposed to Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem. They had heard about his declaration of God most high, who's slow to chide and swift to bless. God had taken the time to confirm eyewitness testimony of what had been the great outcry against the city. Instead of immediately judging, he had given time to let that outcry grow, and then he had taken the time carefully to send two witnesses, rather than immediate wrath. You see, God was merciful very much to Sodom. This wasn't a bad Tuesday that the king of heaven said, I'm just done. And the the first sinful act that happened in Sodom, they were all wiped out. You see, Lot's family may have been spared, but remember, in verse 17, the angel had warned them, don't look back. We see verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, I don't know about you, but in Sunday school, I was horrified to hear about this one. And my gracious Sunday school teacher loved them to death. They said, okay, kids, Don't you ever disobey the Lord because, (laughs) and now let's sing about how Jesus loves us. And I was a little bit terrified, honestly. (laughs) But how did this happen scientifically? What what actually happened? The um, uh, K&D commentary in the Old Testament says this. I like this. We are not to suppose she was actually turned into a pillar of salt, but having been killed by the fiery and sulfurous vapor with which the air was filled and afterwards encrusted with salt, She resembled an actual statue of salt. Just as even now, from the sailing exhalation of the Dead Sea, objects near it are quickly covered with a crust of salt. The point is, she was judged and taken in the wrath. You see, the idea of looking back, why did she look back? The idea of looking back in the Hebrew here could mean looking intently or even lingering or even turning back. Why did she look back? Well, the same answer is, to the question, why do young men look back at their sports cars when they're in the parking lot and they park just far enough away from everyone that no one will scratch the vehicle and they're entering the store? They keep looking back at the car. Why? Because something we value and treasure is behind us and looking back is an indication that our hearts are still in whatever that thing is. You see, Jesus referenced Lot's wife in Luke 17. And he said, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, They were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And then he says this, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it but whoever loses his life will keep it. You see, Jesus speaks about the day of judgment and likens it to this morning in Sodom. He says, remember Lot's wife. He's essentially saying, 
There's nothing in this world that we need to look back to. Nothing in this world that will truly preserve life. Only faith in Jesus Christ can save. And so you and I, even if we perceive the day of judgment, we look ahead to a heavenly city. We don't look back to the corruption in the worldly city of Sodom. Verses 27 through 29 show us that Abraham looked down and he observed the smoke. And we know where there's smoke, there's fire. The fire of God's wrath. Verse 29, though, says God remembered Abraham. Now, we've mentioned this previously when we talked about Noah and we studied Noah's um, obedience to the Lord and in his time in the ark. When the text declares God remembered Abraham or God remembered Noah, that does not mean God had forgotten about him. It's, oh, man, there's someone. Oh, yeah, that's right. Abraham. Instead, when it says God remembered Abraham, God remembered Noah, instead that means that God now works in a way that is consistent with his character and on behalf of his people. I love that the Psalms speak often about God remembering his covenant. God remembers his people. It's a great assurance for us that God will work in a way that's consistent with his character and in his mercy. Abraham had pleaded humbly with God for the salvation of those who were righteous in the city, and God had answered that prayer, remembering Abraham and sparing Lot and his family. But the people of the valley, the people in the city of Sodom and in the city of Gomorrah and in the surrounding villages and Lot's wife perished in the judgment of God. So think of the suffering that Lot endured because of his compromise. He lost his wife, He lost his wealth, and he lost his witness. Hebrews 11.25 reminds us that the pleasures of sin, there are pleasures of sin, but they're fleeting pleasures. And some would say, well, you know, when I was younger, I sowed my wild oats. The problem is we reap what we sow. And sin is the great liar that promises, I will bring you fullness of joy, but it leaves us suffering and empty. And that's just the natural consequence of our sin. We suffer because we sin. But that's not even mentioning the suffering of the judgment of God against sin. And so now Lot is facing the suffering of God, or the suffering of judgment. But there's more. There's also scandal. So let's look at this last section and see how scandal and disaster are a result of compromise. It says, Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters. Why would you do that? He was afraid to live in Zoar, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. You can't blame him, though, can you? You wake up every morning, you see the sun peeking over the hill, and you're just wondering, is today another fireball? So he has a little bit of PTSD. Uh, I get that. But just for a minute, it's comical, but just for a minute, this fear is unfounded. Lot should have made his way back to Canaan, back to Abraham, to repent and walk with Yahweh. But instead, he just camps out near this desolate place where Sodom was. And now in the darkness and in the solitude and in the hiddenness of a cave. Instead of coming out into the light, he instead isolates and hides out of fear. And that happens with a lot of Christians who find themselves falling into sin. Instead of being a part of the covenantal people, they isolate to their own shame. Now, what happens next is the natural progression of sin. When it's embraced by parents, it's amplified in the children. 
So we see in verse 31, the firstborn says to the younger, Our father is old. There's not a man on earth to come into us after all, or after the manner of all the earth. It's a bit of an exaggeration, but it's, it's their perception because they're, they're camped out in a cave. Everything around them is wiped out. Verse 32, come let us make our father drink wine. We'll lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. If we thought it was despicable what Lot had offered, it's now amplified. Now we have drunkenness and incest. Verse 33, so they made their father drink wine that night. The firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And so what do we not see? We don't see them inquiring of the Lord. We don't see them... Asking God, Lord, what should we do? Where should we go? They just rely on their own wisdom and they commit gross transgression. Same thing happens with the younger daughter the next day. And then we come to verse 36. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. This is scandalous. This is despicable. And then it says, the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger bore a son who's the father of the Ammonites. And so know with me, church, this isolation causes confusion, which leads to drunkenness and incest, and the result is the birth of the Moabite and Ammonite people groups. Now, both of these peoples lived on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and they were both a constant snare to Israel. The Moabites, for example, they worshiped the false god Shamash, and over and over you see the Moabite women who are trying to constantly lead the men of Israel astray. They led them astray to worship Baal, and they led them astray with sexual immorality. It was both the Moabites and the Ammonites, remember, who hired Balaam to curse Israel. And the Ammonites were very cruel people. They worshiped Milcom and Molech, very savage, cruel nation. And God had commanded Israel, do not marry these, these intermarry these pagan peoples. Because to do so would to adopt the worship of Molech or Shamash. And these foreign false gods are an abomination. And we know what happened with King Solomon, don't we? King Solomon married a bunch of women. And one of them was Nema the Ammonite. And of course, we know his heart was drawn away from Yahweh because of the idols of his 300 wives. So he actually breaks God's law and God's command and marries an Ammonite. Now, what should have happened is after this destruction, Lot's ministry to the eastern seaboard of the Dead Sea should have been this incredible revival. We should have seen God's name being adored among the nations. But now because of Lot, his name was subject to being profaned. The hearts of Lot's family resided in Sodom because Sodom resided in their hearts. And to them, Sodom was more important than their own salvation. And in our own life, compromise begins with these steps by drawing closer and closer, inch by inch, to the things of this world, to let sin be tolerated when we should put it to death. And then we suffer greatly, and what we find is scandal rather than the praise of Yahweh. And all of this happens subtly. It happens when we fail to be on guard or on watch. We all know what happened on Sunday morning, December 7th, 1941. We know Pearl Harbor was attacked. What a lot of people don't know is about 50 minutes before the attack, 7 a.m. sharp, Japanese warplanes are about 137 miles or less than an hour away 
there was a small radar station that actually did pick up all of the blips entering the screen, all these dots filling the void. And sadly, a commanding officer dismissed them as nothing important. He said these words, don't worry about it. He thought maybe there were planes coming in from California and the radar was just malfunctioning. And just think what it could have been prevented if the warning were taken seriously. In our own lives, is there something that has the potential to wreak havoc, to produce spiritual destruction, and yet you dismiss it away and say, don't worry about it. It's just little. It's a little sin. Well, I implore you this morning, put it to death. John Newton said these words, the doom of Sodom wilt be ours if to the earth we cleave. Lord, quicken all our drowsy powers to flee to thee and live. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Christ. You've never repented of your sin. You've never been saved from the wrath of God. And yet, when we understand the gospel, our hope is not in saving ourselves from destruction, but it's receiving the mercies of God who seizes us from certain doom and draws us near himself. The writer of Hebrews would ask this question, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So I implore you today, receive Christ. Judgment is coming. It may not be this morning, but it is coming. And one day, judgment will dawn. So receive Christ, I implore you. Turn from your sin. As Christians, as Christ followers, we can learn much from Lot's mistakes. But listen, our ultimate hope is not to, hey, be a better Lot. Do better than Lot did. No, our admonition is to look to the true and greater Lot, our Lord Jesus Christ. Just for a minute, consider how Jesus is the antitype. Jesus sojourned among a sinful people. Jesus tabernacled among sinners, and yet without sin. Jesus ate with sinners, but he didn't sin with sinners. Jesus never compromised. He never settled for what was convenient, what was easy. In Matthew 4, even being tempted by the devil, and he has not eaten for 40 days or 40 nights, mind you, nowhere do we read as Satan tempts him, turn these stones into bread. Nowhere do we read Jesus saying, well, just once. I am a little hungry after all. Have you noticed how long I've fasted? No, Jesus experienced the suffering and the judgment of God against sin without settling. He stood apart from the sinfulness. The writer of Hebrews in 7.26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Jesus is a true and better law. Jesus suffered, but it wasn't for his own sin. It was for ours. Jesus died in a scandalous way, but a way that brings God the ultimate glory. And you might be here today and you might have a family that has been marked by scandal and you think, well, now I'm outside of the, I'm outside of the reach of the gospel. And let me remind you, Lot's family ended up becoming the Moabites, but in God's providential care. As we open up the Old Testament book of Ruth, we see Ruth is married to Boaz. She's grafted into the line of Messiah, and she's known over and over in the book of Ruth as Ruth the Moabitess. You see, you and I may see great failure in our own lives and in the life of Lot, and yet in Jesus we see the power of the gospel in our own salvation and even over our sinfulness. And so this morning, the hope is not be a better Lot. The hope is look to the Lord Jesus. As the great hymn beckons us, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? 
There's a light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen? Let's stand together. We're going to close this time in song and being reminded that we behold our God. So let's do that together as we pray. Father, we turn our eyes to Jesus, our great high priest, and we thank you that as we turn our eyes to look upon the face of Christ, we do see our own sinfulness, and yet we know our sins were imputed to the Son and his righteousness was imputed to us. So this morning, we thank you and we look to you for our righteousness. You are our only plea. It's not that we would produce or conjure up our own righteousness. Those are filthy rags. But Lord, this morning, we fall upon the mercies of Christ. Lord, please rescue us if we're walking towards compromise. This is a heavy chapter in the text of Scripture, but in the end, we do see the hope as a Moabitess is brought into the line of Messiah. Lord, we thank you for your mercies to us this morning. And we ask, Lord, that we would behold our God in all of his resplendent glory because of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.